Welcome to Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work that they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. How's it going, folks? I hope your week has been more exciting than mine because at the time of recording this, I still find myself chained to my desk studying for my LPZ exams. On tonight's menu are company procedure plans with a dash of share buybacks. I know, very exhilarating. But now for some actual head-grabbing headlines, the Facebook leaks. Yes, the latest scandal and a very long, dragged-out story from our favorite social media giant about commoditizing us consumers by selling our data and monetizing in polarized content by amplifying it and making millions off of the engagement that we do with it without a single regard for the social implications. Now, my position, as you might tell from my tone, is quite simple. I don't pay for these products. I don't pay to use LinkedIn, Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, Google. Therefore, I am perfectly happy being the product. In fact, I feel like we almost get a more advantageous side of this transaction. Why is that? Because I don't think the data they collect on us, or at least me, is that much interesting or that much worth anything. What are they going to do with my browsing history of productivity tips and searches or my Amazon shopaholic transaction list of buying oil diffusers to make my room smell nice or egg whites for my egg white omelets? I mean, I guess the most scandalous thing they could find on me is that I binged Squid Game on Netflix in one sitting the night before my exam on civil litigation. But as I said, hardly the type of data that would sell for very much. But with all things long, I wanted to get an second opinion on the matter, particularly an expert opinion on this issue, which is why for this week, we'll be looking at e-marketing and data protection law with Jay Bartlett, a global compliance officer at the Financial Times. In the episode, we cover what e-marketing and data protection law is, the unfruitful characterization of businesses in the space due to a few bad actors, and the challenge of regulation keeping up with the pace of technology. Now, I very much enjoyed my conversation with Jay in this episode as we were able to get into a bit of a fireside exchange on the ethics of data monetization and the importance of reading the privacy policy in the terms of conditions of the services you subscribe to, which is totally something I've done before and totally something I'll continue on doing. But enough on that. Without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa and enjoy the show. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Now, we've got a lot to talk about, but before we jump in, uh, why don't you tell us about yourself, kind of one to two lines? Yeah, sure. So my name's Jade Bartlett, and currently I work as a compliance officer at the Financial Times. I previously trained as a secondary school teacher after completing my law degree, but then I went back into law, starting with a position as a legal intern at Walt Disney, then briefly paralegaled in private practice before settling in compliance where I am. 
So quite the zigzag journey. And obviously we'll, we'll get into that at the second half. But first off, let's, let's talk about your current role at the FT in kind of compliance. So what would you say is the world of compliance? What do you deal with? Uh, well, I'm a general compliance officer. So there's different types of things that I look at, including anti-bribery and corruption, modern slavery, some competition law. Um, but predominantly, most of what I do is data protection related, which includes e-marketing as well. And so how would you describe, you know, e-marketing and data protection law? Well, data protection law is quite literally the protection of individuals' personal data. Um, and there are legal ob- obligations put on certain entities to ensure that personal data of consumers is protected. So in the UK, this is the GDPR and the Data Protection Act 2018. Um, there's other global laws as well that affect that, depending on if your business operates globally. And e-marketing is essentially marketing communications electronically. So in the UK and Europe, that's regulated by PECA, which is the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations, and covers cookies as well. So with data protection and e-marketing, there's quite a lot of crossover, and they tend to have to be read alongside each other. Yeah, that's essentially it. So if, if I understand this correctly, kind of e-marketing involves kind of the use of, of people's kind of individual data. And so obviously when conducting e-marketing, you have to kind of have a mindset towards data protection laws as well. Yeah. So e-marketing will literally be, for example, sending emails or text messages or phone calls, marketing to people electronically. The EU regulations that also include cookies and similar technologies, which would include when you access a website and if you need cookie consent, you know, there's the cookie banner that pops up. Yeah, Um, all too well. (laughs) Everyone knows all about that. Um, But the GDPR and the privacy and electronic communication regulations need to be read alongside each other because that's the way that they were supposed to have been written. Um, PECA is quite out of date. And there's an e-privacy law coming in in draft form to update that. But essentially, you need to look at if you're contacting individuals or corporates, and then you need to look at whether you require consent to send that email or that marketing message. And then once you've done that, you look at the GDPR lawful basis. Quite a, a diverse area with, with a lot of regulation and new regulation coming in. Um, but let's kind of take a step back for the moment because, you know, data and privacy um, around our, our, our kind of own individual information have become kind of the pinnacle talking point over the last five years. But typically, at least from my perspective, when I see it on the media, it's always focused on kind of the individual perspective. So the client, the, the individual user's perspective or the customer's perspective and businesses in that story are typically characterized as Goliaths, you know, leeching off our data to make a quick profit. Now, coming from the other side, from the business side, you know, do you believe that's a fair characterization for all businesses? I I don't think it's fair to characterize all businesses as that. No, I I know at Financial Times we're very ethically aware of what we do with people's data, and I think that is currently an industry trend right now. So there's so much that businesses can do with tech. And data. But I think one of the most important things right now is to say, okay, we can do this, but should we be doing this? Would our consumers expect this of us? Or is this just monetizing the data that they've given us or that they potentially don't even know that they've given us if it involves tracking them online? Um, so I think a lot of companies, including Financial Times, uh, treat data very ethically and are very transparent about what we do. But 
certainly there are some companies that aren't quite like that and are fond of some of the loopholes in GDPR and potentially use lawful basis incorrectly. So just the the bad luck of being mixed into the pot with with the bad actors that make the good actors look bad as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's really important for consumers to understand exactly what is happening with their personal data. And pretty much the only way to do that is to actually read the privacy policies on websites and apps. And a lot of people don't do that. They just hit the agree button. I mean, even as a lawyer, kind of reading the privacy policy and the terms and conditions for that matter is is a bit kind of too much of a of, of an overkill. It's a, it's a lot of legalistic language. I don't know in in your experience, kind of you know having to be on the side of drafting these privacy policies. Whether there's a there's an effort to kind of make it more, I'd say, layman friendly. Yeah, certainly there is, and that's actually even in the ICO guidance. So the ICO is the Data Protection Authority for the UK. And there should be snippets of very straightforward, accurate, transparent information with the potential to, you know, click those paragraphs and have a drop down box that goes into into more detail. So if you're confronted with a privacy policy that looks essentially like a legal contract that makes no sense at all, then that really isn't following the guidance that we've been given anyway. Um, It really should be user friendly and to be able to explain these these things to the layman. Yeah, no, I mean, at at the end of the day, we should be empowering kind of individuals to understand the information that we're giving kind of companies, but also kind of, you know, what companies are using with our information. Now, regarding kind of the FT, because the FT, like a lot of kind of other big companies, is a global organization. And as you said, you know, depending on which jurisdiction you are, you have different applicable data protection laws or or e-marketing laws. So I just wanted to get a view. On the one hand, we talked about, you know, the the motives behind the use of data and how we communicate the use of data. But from a regulatory point of view, how difficult is it for a global company like FT to be compliant with these laws? Uh, It's certainly challenging. I think from, first of all, from the standpoint of the ever-increasing data protection laws that are being enforced globally. So obviously we had the GDPR in 2018. Then California enforced the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is actually already going to be replaced by the CPRA in January 2023 on the exactly the same date as the new Virginia law comes into force as well. Colorado has just passed. Uh, Brazil, New Zealand have just had new data protection acts passed as well. Um, Obviously, there's a challenge with these because they're all slightly different with their own national laws or state laws as it is in, in the US. But where they align with GDPR, it becomes more simple. Where they go further than GDPR, then there's obviously an additional amount of work we need to do. So, for example, with CCPA in California, consumers have a do not sell my data right. And if you look actually in the act, sell goes beyond monetary consideration. So it simply means share my data, which obviously has an impact on advertising and ad tech. So we now have a separate page on ft.com that's triggered if a subscriber is logging in from California where they can simply block that very easily. And that's because that's a Californian law that goes beyond GDPR where we have to do something additional. Whereas a lot of the global laws look to GDPR sort of as a precedent. So we can use that as our highest standpoint and then filter, filter down to the other global laws. But where where a national law doesn't go as far as GDPR, we will still give them all the required GDPR rights because we are compliant with GDPR. So if a national law doesn't have the right to access their data, we would still allow them that right. 
doesn't matter where they are. So it, it is challenging, yeah. More so with e-marketing, actually. Yeah, and, and that was what I was going to ask is essentially the FT, at least the the, the, the digital kind of app and the website, essentially is a, is a borderless virtual environment. And when having to comply with all these different kind of national jurisdictions and their legislations, you know, how you you know, break it down or how you fragment that virtual environment and also kind of the approach that you take, you know, whether it's having to make sure that, you know, as you said, the GDPR is the kind of standard, you know, countries which don't go as far as the GDPR, well, you know, users from those countries benefit from the GDPR levels of protection. And those countries which have, or states in this case, which have higher regulations, uh, well, you accommodate those to make sure you're complying in those necessary jurisdictions, but don't necessarily do it across the board, if I'm understanding that correctly. Yeah. So, so California is probably the best example just because it has that do not sell stipulation that just doesn't really exist anywhere else. You can still block advertising on a managed cookies page, but because there is an official explicit do not sell, right, we have to have that page. Um, but really the jurisdictional issue, the issues come down to the transfer of personal data because as you say, it's a borderless environment. So in the EU, we can transfer data where there's been an adequacy decision or if there's other safeguards. And there's been a few court cases recently that has kind of hindered that a little bit. Uh, anyone in the data protection world will know of the Schrems cases where um, a guy called Max Schrems went to the European court and claimed that the US EU safe harbor wasn't adequate for the protection of personal data of EU citizens. And they agreed. So then everyone started using the privacy shield instead. And then Schrems 2 came along and uh, took that to court as well. And that wasn't good enough. And now we're using standard contractual clauses with additional safeguards. So it's the transfer of data that is the biggest issue here in a borderless environment because there just aren't the same protections in other countries that there necessarily is in Europe. In US, the issue with that is the intelligence services requesting access to personal data. And that's pretty much the issue that Schrems has with it. But then with e-marketing, the rules are incredibly different in every single country, at least with data protection, that the rule akin in some way. But with e-marketing, whether or not you can email an individual subscriber or a corporate subscriber, whether or not you need consent, if you don't need consent, the different mitigations you do require, such as looking at a do not email or a do not call list, is different even within the countries in Europe. So a lot of time goes into looking at different national laws for e-marketing, sometimes trying to look for a translated version, finding commentary on it. Some of the, some of the versions are conflicting. It's, it's very time consuming. And obviously we want to get it right because we shouldn't be marketing to people who have either said no or have a law in their country that prevents it because they will know of that law. They know they shouldn't be hit with e-marketing. And then obviously as a company would then potentially get in trouble. So there's a lot to wade through in terms of the virtual borderless environment. And one of the other things that you said that caught my interest was this idea that, at least I think it was in California, you were saying that a new law is now coming into a place just after kind of a, another law recently got passed. Why are these legislations quickly prone to obsolescence or to be updated? Is it, you know, that we figure out 
more and more about kind of the use of our data or how it's monetized? Is it that the legend, the rules that we put in place, you know, bad actors quickly find a loophole and it's kind of, you know, uh, whack-a-mole where we've got to kind of, you know, cover, <laughs> cover, cover the potholes to make sure that, you know, these issues don't, don't work. Why is the, the, the rate of change in e-marketing and data protection laws just so high? Well, it's usually because um, the, the text of the act isn't necessarily read in the way that the, the lawmakers intended it to be read. So for the California one, it's more of an update, um, particularly to the do not sell feature. Um, but generally, it's a real struggle for laws to keep up with de- the development of data protection and e-marketing because of, I mean, we're going leaps and bounds ahead in terms of tech and lawmakers just cannot quickly enough, A, understand what's happening and then be able to formulate a response to it, write it down in, in as an act, have that passed and then enforce that. Um, it just does not happen quick enough. We, we, we're seeing this problem with, with PECA, with the, e-privacy regulations because they're out of date there's been a draft form for a number of years now and the draft form is already out of date because it talks about consent for cookies and currently the industry is moving away from the third party cookie into you know looking into different ways to capture and track data online and google is is quite at the forefront of that so where we have a draft e-privacy regulation that's referencing cookies and we're moving away from cookies as an industry, it's not even enforcing it's already out of date. So um, it, it is tricky and the law just cannot keep up with movement of the times in tech. So essentially a bit of like a, a, a cat and mouse game, except, you know, regulation has to is starting to realize that it's got to catch up a lot faster <laughs> than it currently is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And from a compliance perspective, that's an additional challenge because when you're giving advice to the business, obviously you don't want to give commercial advice and say, okay, you can do this based on this law, but knowing full well that in a year or two or whenever it might be, that law won't even exist anymore or that part in the law won't exist anymore. Um, Another example in the e-privacy regulation is current draft form. It doesn't look like there's a corporate exemption for e-marketing at the moment under PECA we can send email marketing to corporate subscribers without them having to actively opt in beforehand. It's, it's an opt-out situation. Um, that corporate exemption isn't in the draft. So, you know, it, it then becomes tricky to say to the business, okay, you've got this idea for X, Y, and Z. Currently we have this exemption, but we don't know if it will exist in the next three years. So it becomes difficult to provide compliance advice and you have to be aware of that of of where the laws are going where it looks like they're going as well as the laws that we currently have to comply with so it's a bit of a i mean correct me if i'm wrong but compliance is starting to seem at least from the global perspective you know half uh, academia in terms of you know staying up to date with the legislation not only with the uk legislation and the eu legislation but global and also where countries are federal kind of state by state um, and the commentaries around, you know, how this is to be interpreted. And on the other hand, it's the whole issue of implementation. I mean, you want to make sure that you get this implemented correctly, but you also want to ensure that it doesn't get stuck there because two years later or three years later, or even less or even more, the whole regulation changes and you've got to kind of, you know, replace your implementation that you've already put in place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a there's a lot of different... Um 
different facets that go into compliance at the moment. Um, academia is actually a, is a really good point. There is a lot of commentary and webinars and things like that um, that we that we read and attend to try and get an idea of where the law is going. Yeah, and that can be very challenging. I, I think though that the, the GDPR is good and flexible enough for us to be able to plan fairly well with different projects that are happening because of the privacy principles that are incorporated into the GDPR. So for example, privacy by design is really helpful. Minimization of data, storage limitation. There's all these really good principles that if you build into the initial planning of a project or development or whatever, um, should help in the long run because those are principles that won't change. Data protection law will never say don't minimize data or keep data for as long as you want. Um, so they're really good principles to work off. But yeah, it's, it's certainly tricky keeping one eye on where different laws are going. We're really hoping that the US will have a federal law soon because all of these states are passing different data protection acts that are slightly different. And I don't fancy having to balance 50 different US laws <laughs> in the next few years. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine it would make your work a lot easier if it was just one as opposed to 50. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and do you see that move into kind of um, centralization or, or consolidation, at least on an international level? I know you, you talked about the ICO, but you know, do we see progressively in the next five years the industry having more kind of global policies to reflect that in the end, a lot of business is just that international, you know, borderless transactions and a lot of services, particularly digital services, are borderless. You know, you might be offering kind of, you know, an FT subscription to someone in Brazil versus someone, someone in California versus someone to kind of India. And so having as a compliance officer to, you know, be aware of all the laws and regulations and making sure that you're not stepping on regulators' toes is an incredibly kind of you know, difficult and complicated task. So is, is there any kind of sentiment or sense that this is going to get easier and more streamlined in the future? Um, quick answer, no. I, I don't think in the next five years this will get much easier. I mean, I'm hoping we'll have a federal US law by then. I'm hoping we'll have a new e-privacy regulation that makes sense and complements the GDPR. Um, but on an international level, I think it will be tricky because... There are just so many different priorities in in national laws that have an impact on data protection. Uh, e even within Europe, the, the data protection authority in France is so much more stringent than the ICO in the UK um, to the extent that they've argued that the GDPR one-stop shop mechanism doesn't apply to PECA, which essentially means that the data protection authority of the country of where the company is based will find them and conduct an investigation. Um, so the CNIL essentially wants to uh, <laughs> just run with finding as many as many companies as possible. Um, it's so much more stringent than the ICO. But the point that data protection is so pervasive, it impacts an antitrust law as well. And I think unless different regulators like the Competition Markets Authority and other competition regulators around the globe acknowledge the point that data impacts competition law as well we just won't have those international regulations we can't we can't have them it, it just wouldn't make sense so and a lot of countries are a lot more lax about data protection some countries 
prioritize security over data protection. For example, India have new regulations that effectively mean that they want WhatsApp to stop encrypting the originator of messages in cases of wrongdoing where there's, you know, where laws have been broken. WhatsApp are up in arms about it because it's encrypted on both sides. Then they would have to stop the encryption on both ends as well. You know, personal data goes beyond just, you know, I'm Jade, this is my personal data. It impacts so many different areas of business. I don't think it'd be possible, essentially. I think this is a perfect opportunity for me uh, to play a little bit of devil's advocate. I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, data protection and e-marketing, the complexities of the regulation, the rate of change. But do you believe that kind of our level of protection is warranted? I mean, I would say on, on the counter side, you could always say that a lot of these companies offer services for free and users happily access those services for free in exchange you know the way they monetize their business model is through the use and sale of our data one can say if people didn't want to share this data then simply they should go to a paid provider now there's an issue as to you know the existence of subscription-based models um so for example if you don't want to go to facebook or instagram or whatsapp you know where else do you go to to chat on social media where they're not selling your data but yeah i, I think i just wanted a, a bit of sense as to why there's such a such a fuss as to the level of protection of an individual citizen's data well first of all i think the the protection of personal data is warranted. There is obviously the argument that if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. So just deal with it if you want to use these services. But I think the difficulty there is where do you draw the line, especially if the company itself isn't transparent with the data that it processes. So there's so much tech behind the apps and websites that people use that they're just not aware of. I mean, it's possible for companies to tell mouse movements on a website with the time you open an email, how far down you scroll down the email before you delete it, if you do delete it. Um, And that all impacts on how they change their services and how they hit you with marketing and things like that. Some companies will track the websites you go to and then build a profile about you. They don't always get it right. So you you can actually check in Google and your manage account settings and have a little look at what they think about you. They, for some reason, think I'm a middle-aged man who enjoys video games. I don't know why they think that. Um, so they don't always get it right. But in some cases, if someone is searching, for example, um, helplines for mental health or something like that, companies can track that and build a profile about you and then hit you with advertising that they think is relevant. Um, there's been cases where mothers have had miscarriages and things like that, but they've still been hit with advertisements about buying baby clothes and things like that. Um, Like really sad situations. And I think the protection of personal data is so important in these instances. People should be aware about what is happening with their data. They should have the twist to object. And at the end of the day, how do you stop using Google? I mean, especially if you work for a company that uses Gmail, or even has Google as their homepage for a search engine. I, I don't think it's possible to just say you use these products and therefore we track everything you do or you don't use these products at all because we live and work in a, in a virtual tech-based environment now. So I don't think that argument is fair on the consumer at all. And you raise a great point about, especially with the Google point, to the extent that these companies are so big and and so necessary to our day in and day out life that they almost become public utilities. 
And I'd love to kind of go down that rabbit hole and continue talking for hours on it. But um, for the purposes of, of the podcast, um, let's move on into, you know, in your career as a, as, as a global compliance officer, what's been the, the highlight moment on the job so far for you? Um, I think there's been a few, actually. It's, it's probably quite hard to pinpoint one, but I think uh, writing my first privacy policy for, one, for a company that we recently acquired was, was quite a highlight, seeing that go live. Um, that was months of hard work, uh, data mapping, figuring out the data that's used, how long it's retained for, and then formulating that into a document that's accurate and transparent. And then watching that go live on the web page, that was that was pretty exciting. But then there's been a lot of challenges as well in the in the last year with COVID and the pandemic, you know, moving things online. Um, from a compliance perspective, we're obviously continuing to look at global data protection laws, but then in conjunction with global HR laws, different national HR laws and COVID laws and regulations. So all three of them in conjunction. So it's not so much a specific highlight as such, but it's been incredibly challenging and very interesting as well, trying to juggle all of them across different countries for our global offices has has definitely kept me on my toes. I mean, truly, at, at this point, you must consider yourself an international lawyer, just on the basis of how much you know about other jurisdictions and their e-marketing laws, COVID laws, data protection laws. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't go that far, but I, I would say... <laughs> I have I have quite a lot of uh, knowledge around niche areas in international law. <laughs> and so what got you into this area of law? At the beginning of the podcast, you talked about kind of BGCE, working as an intern at Walt Disney, paralegal in private practice. Tell us a little bit about your career journey. Um, well, oddly enough, data protection and e-marketing wasn't something that I'd had any experience in prior to been spammed with emails in 2018 <laughs> for everyone else when uh, the GDPR came into effect. Um, but I interned in the data privacy and marketing legal, ter- legal team at Disney. And I worked very closely with the data privacy attorney there. And I was really intrigued by the work she was doing with uh, data protection agreements and just generally the conversations we were having about the nature of data protection and how pervasive it is. Um, I've already touched on how it overlaps with e-marketing and antitrust in different ways, but it affects consumers day to day and, and on a really personal level as we now know with the NHS track and trace and, you know, medical data and even things like CCTV and HR data, the data that your employees have about you. And yeah, I got really interested in it from that. So really I credit my current passion for the subject to a great lawyer who showed me the ropes. And, and what was it like, you know, what was the, the, the data privacy situation at, at Disney like uh, generally? What was it again, this kind of same issue that you're facing with the FT as the, you know, that international landscape, always having to think about kind of different countries and their rules? Yeah, yeah. So there was part of my role at the time was to keep a tracker of different global laws that were coming into effect, um, different fines under GDPR and how they relate to Disney. A lot of it was due diligence on suppliers and um, going through data protection agreements to make sure the correct clauses are in place, looking at whether we're a processor or a controller, which is similar to what I do at the Financial Times now, actually. But obviously, Disney is so big (laughs) and we were only one small team. So there were different um, data privacy teams in different countries for Disney. (laughs) So you went from Disney then into private practice 
then to FT. When you were in private practice, you were also working on kind of data protection and e-marketing or, or not? Yeah, so I was, it was quite a big team in private practice and some parts of the team worked on data privacy, some on intellectual property, some on commercials. Um, I was actually more on the intellectual property side at that point um, and the marketing and advertising side. Um, I have a master's in IP, so that worked really well. And then obviously I had the marketing and advertising background from Disney, but I found that I really, really missed working with data protection and the small amount of work I was doing just um, in data protection there wasn't enough. So I knew that I wanted to go into compliance and really move completely into the data protection world. Is that how you would characterize the difference, at least from, from the compliance perspective between working at a, at a law firm versus kind of working in-house at a corporate like Disney or FT is, is just the ability to kind of specialize and the amount of work that you get data protection wise? Yeah, so... At FT, I'm I'm still in the legal team and I work with lawyers daily. Um, but because of the nature of the Financial Times, you know, um, FT.com or a publication, we have subscriptions and things like that. And the majority of the role is data protection oriented, orientated. So um, that, yeah, really, really pushed me to go for that role. And there are, as I said at the beginning, I am general compliance officer. So there are other areas to compliance that, I need to get involved in, such as modern slavery and um, anti-bribery and corruption. Obviously, we do policy reviews and training and things like that. But um, just by the nature of the role, it is mainly data protection from a legal perspective. Yeah. I just don't write the uh, data protection agreements because I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and so what are the skills necessary to, to, to get into this field, you know, to work in compliance, specifically with regards to data protection and e-marketing? I think definitely in IFA detail, because going through so many different global laws and regulations, it's important to really zero in on the actual requirements for different national laws. The ability to prioritise to strict fixed deadlines, because obviously there are statutory deadlines under GDPR and there's the potential of the company being fined if you don't adhere to them. Um, really important as well is seeing the gaps in the situation. So being able to look at sheets of information and notice a dis- discrepancy and say how in a minute there's a gap here there's definitely some information missing and knowing when there's information missing and where to ask for it and basically get into the bottom of that situation that usually comes up in due diligence and things like that and so how would you uh recommend kind of students currently at university to go about developing these skills i think coursework naturally helps but also gaining work experience will help enhance those sort of skills and that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be legal experience I think most work experience where you're looking at documents and things like that will help with those skills but particularly in the commercial world getting work experience is so important because in compliance you need that element of commerciality you have to be able to look at the business and think okay this is what the business wants to do these are the laws that impact it how can we make this work do they marry up already or is there a risk if so what's the level of the risk and you have to be able to converse with commercial people in their language as well so it's all about kind of you know having a view to the law but on the other hand having a view to the business model the objectives and how to almost you know you don't only want to give the legal advice but you also want to make sure that you provide a solution to the business yeah, yeah, exactly. I think um, that that's exactly it because you want to be able to explain the legal advice in a way that they understand it and can go off and 
like tweak whatever it is they're doing in a way that would make them compliant without just, you know, a blanket yes or no, you can or you can't do that. Because I like to think that, <laughs> you know, we're, we're not here to just say no, we're here to say yes, but. <laughs> That's a good strategy. <laughs> yes, you can do that, but you must also do this. <laughs> Change the perception of compliance as just being the bad guy, but more kind of a proactive member yeah. to the strategy. <laughs> we're here to help. <laughs> So what words of, of inspiration do you have? I mean, you know, in the context of, of the time of this recording, we're, we're just about to, to come out of lockdown, hopefully, um, for, <laughs> for good. Um, and this past year has been quite, quite, the, quite the whirlwind between, you know, students having to do university online, work experiences either being cancelled or being moved online. And so the, the drawbacks of that. What do you say to students who kind of look in now to the job market and think, oof, this was even more competitive and more difficult than before? I'm not really sure kind of, you know, there's a job for me out there. Well, I'll, I'll always say to strive for that dream career, whatever that may be. But I think if it is incredibly challenging, particularly in the current world that we're living in, I would advise to look for alternative ways to get there. So it might take a little longer. Um, but you'll learn more things on your way and you might even find something that you love even more, which is exactly what happened to me. So, you know, I was seeking that elusive training contract and found compliance and I love it and I'm not going anywhere. So. <laughs> Fantastic. And on that note, I usually like to to, to end these, the, these recordings with a bit of a kind of lighthearted tone. We've gone through the informative, we've gone through the inspirational, now for a bit of uh, relief. And you've talked about your love for kind of data protection and e-marketing. I'm actually curious now, what was your most hated law subject in law school or on your master's? Um, definitely equity and trusts, 100%. I, <laughs> I take my hat off to anyone who works in that area. <laughs> Very complicated area of law. <laughs> I, think, I think there definitely should be some regulation to make that subject more user-friendly, you know, more clear, more <laughs> accessible. Definitely. I would agree with that. <laughs> well, Jade, thank you so much for taking the time to go onto the podcast today. I've learned a lot and I'm sure our, our audience has learned a lot as well. If people want to reach out to you for further questions, can they? And if so, how? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really active on LinkedIn, so they can find me there, Jade Bartlett, Compliance Officer at FT, and they, they can send me a message. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Jade, and have a great day. Thank you. You too. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about e-marketing and data protection law and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Jade. We've linked a LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute bang of a theme song. Want to join Legal Tea? Well, we're hiring. Yes, we're currently looking for someone with their love for our legal brew and a passion in marketing and outreach to join us at Legal Tea. If you think this sounds like you and want more information, give us a shout on our social media platforms at legaltea.uk or send us an email at hello at legaltea.uk to spill us your tea. Till next time.